pain. Every person knows what pain is. In fact, every person on the planet has been wounded by pain at some point in their life. For some, pain is a feeling. For others, it's decades of emotional frustration revealed to the world in ways of bitterness, anxiousness, pride, addictions, jealousy. But all of these are merely just symptoms of a bigger problem. The problem is a heart that's been broken. And it's in the state of brokenness that pain begins to take root. Pain that's pounded deep into our hearts, causing us to form beliefs that were never meant to be there. In fact, we end up protecting our pain. We keep it captive and sometimes fail to realize that the very thing we're trying to avoid has become our very identity, broken. Jesus said he came to bind and heal the brokenhearted. What that means to us is that it's possible to live with a whole heart. It's possible to live knit together. It's possible to live in a place where our beliefs are centered and wrapped around the healer. Uh, I have this thing. I don't like commercials, and we have a DVR, and uh, so we record shows. We record Survivor, and my plan is generally about, you know, 7.20-ish or so. We're going to turn on the TV, and we're going to start watching Survivor, and that way I don't have to watch the commercials, and I can get all the way to the end and, uh, uh, you know, fast forward through the commercials, and it'll end about the same time that, that Survivor's done, you know, and it's better time management, far more uh, efficient and things like that. Shelly likes to watch it and record it at the same time. She's like, wait, I just can't wait, kind of a thing. And so, and so there's a point for telling you this story. And so um, two weeks ago, uh, it was Wednesday night, and I'm putzing around in the garage, and I'm doing some stuff, and I'm looking at the clock. It's like, man, it's 7.30. I got to quick hurry up, finish up, because I, I want to see, you know, I, I start watching Survivor. I know that Shelly's probably on pins and needles. She can't hardly wait you know, kind of a thing. And so it was about 7.35. I'm in, I, I go into the living room. We sit down together. We're ready to watch Survivor. We turn it on. We get to the DVR thing and it says, you know, Survivor. And we click on that and we start to watch it. And it's the animal planet. <laughs> Big sharks hunting for fish. It was awesome. But it's like, wait a second, this is not Survivor. And it's not looking good for them little fish that the, shark, or the, that the whales are eating right now, kind of a thing. And so we go back and forth, back and forth. Come to find out, we, we didn't... <laughs> For some reason, our DVR decided that we needed to watch Animal Planet more than we needed to watch Survivor. It said Survivor. Everything was right, and yet, <laughs> and yet, it was not. It wasn't the right channel. And so then we flipped over, and it was like 7:35, 7:40. We're now watching. It's like, what did we miss? What did we miss? I, we can't go backwards, and all of these different things, you know. And it was just like, you know, chaos for like. 13 seconds and then we were into it. But the reason I said all that is because we're on part three of a series that we're calling Transplant. And if you haven't been at part one or two, you might feel like I felt the other night. That, that it's like, man, I've missed the first, you know, I've missed the first two parts. How am I going to ever catch up? What, you know, I mean, is this going to, what did I miss? And is it going to be relevant to me? Uh, those kinds of things. I want to encourage you. Uh, if you hear, in fact, you will hear something this morning that's going to help you. You're going to hear something this morning that you like, <clears throat> that, you're, that is necessary for you. We encourage everybody, greatjoy.org. Go to the media tab and you can watch, you can catch up on the last two Sundays. Pastor Tim hit it out of the park last week, did a great job. 
job with his message. And, and of course, Pastor Brian, the first week, he's always awesome. So, anyhow, so, so if you've missed either part, if you've missed either part, you can go there and watch that. Because I, I really, and I feel this about pretty much every series that we do. That, that it's important for the life of a believer, but it's important in the life of our church. And, and we want everybody to kind of keep up. We've got technology to be able to help us, and, and you don't have to miss anything. You can, you can even hear parts, again, that you might have missed during the service, or you might think, man, that, that really ministered to me. It spoke to me. I needed that. What was that again? And you can go there, and it'll help you out. Because our subject, as we said, as I said, the subject is transplant. And, and, and here's part of my thought in this whole thing, is that there are people that are living life trying to get by with a bypass. They're trying to deal with life. They're trying to deal with stuff. They're trying to just make it through. But really, what they really, really need, they don't need a bypass. They need a transplant. They need a new system on the inside of them to help them live life. And, and, and I'm not talking so much about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Many of you have already done that. I'm talking about something a little bit different than that. And there's a little bit of a nuance that I want to try to get over to, over to you this morning. In fact, really, I feel like even though we're on part three, this is the first part of a two-part series that's in the other four-part series. Is, is really because I've got a lot of ground to cover and things that I want to talk about that I need to explain maybe in a little bit different way that's going to really take a couple of weeks to do that. But we're talking about the heart. And we're talking about the heart of uh, the Bible reference not the blood pump that's in our chest, but what the Bible talks about when it talks about the heart. Over 800 times we find the word heart in the Bible, and it refers to some, once in a while it refers to, you know, your, your physical heart, but more often than not, it refers to something on the inside of you. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 4 and verse 23, the Bible tells us that we are to keep our hearts with all diligence. Everybody say, be diligent. Be diligent. When the Bible tells you to be diligent about something, do you know what you should do? Be diligent. This isn't something that's just some passing idea that, hey, that might be a good idea, but, you know, if I do or if I don't, well, whatever kind of a thing. That's not, be diligent is to be diligent. Be diligent is to be aware. And when it says keep your heart, it means to guard. It means to protect. It means to be on God, guard or stand guard on your heart, over your heart, in, in, in that realm of the inside of you because, here's why. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it, out of your heart, flows the forces of life. Your life flows from your heart. Your life flows from the inside. The New International says everything, the New International Version says everything that you do flows from it. Your life, you may not realize it this morning, but your life and everything that flows from your life has been dictated by your heart. There's a, a system, there, there's, a, there's an app, an application that is running, that is helping to direct your life. The Living Bible says, for they influence everything else. The thoughts of your heart influences everything else. The New Living Translation says, for it, your heart determines the course of your life. And, and just like this heart, this string art has definition to it. Because of the border of it, similarly, your heart is what defines the border of your life. Your heart and what's happening on the inside of you, it, it forms, it, 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 gives a, it gives substance to your life and it directs your life in ways that many times we don't even realize are happening. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about some things and, and here's why this is so important for you to understand because our beliefs, what we believe, they're incubated and they're formed in our heart. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul said, for with the heart, man believes. 
With the heart, we believe. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus said that we are not to doubt in our heart. So we can see that sometimes there's conflicting things in our heart or that are fighting for the control of our heart. But essentially, what we believe, what we misbelieve, unbelief, those strongholds, those things are formed in our heart. And they guide, they direct, and the rest of our life flows from that. And not only that, but, but, but the, heart is, <laughs> the heart is where the, it's the control center. The heart is the control center of your life. The heart is the control center of everything that you do. The heart is the, it's the inward, way on, deep down on the inside. Pastor Tim said it like this last week, and I really like this. Pastor Tim said that, that the heart is almost like it's, it, it causes your life to be on autopilot. It's making course directions and decisions for you that many times it's influencing the direction and the course of your life. Your beliefs, and this is why this is so important, what you believe, your beliefs are like the border here. Your beliefs govern what you think and what you say and what you do. What you believe right now, which is why I mentioned misbeliefs, sometimes our misbeliefs, they govern, they're a limiter to what you think and what you say and what you do. Listen to this scripture in the book of Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah chapter 61, and I mentioned the scripture in, uh, in the book of, of uh, Mark, I mentioned the scripture uh, earlier during the welcome time. But in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus was quoting this in the other scripture that I read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me or empowered me to preach good tidings or the gospel, good news to the poor. And this is more than just the physical poor or those that are, that are under finance. This is, when you're poor financially, that means you don't have enough money, doesn't it? It means you have lack. Well, how many of you know if you're, if you're poor relationally, you have lack there. If you're poor uh, educationally, you have a lack there. And so really what this is talking about is it's talking about people that have lack that, that, that are, are, are short of something. And so he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good tidings or good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. For many people, the core of our being, that's what's broken. You see, we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We, we, we live in this world that's been broken because of sin. And because sin has broken the world, the people that inhabit this world, our lives, many people's lives have been broken. And, and our, our, our belief system, the borders and the boundaries of our heart, the, the beliefs that govern what we think, say, and do, they've been broken. And yet we're dealing with life. And we're dealing with stuff. And we're trying to make it through. And Jesus said, I've come for a purpose, and I've come to heal those that have broken hearts. He says, I want to proclaim liberty to the captive. If you want to be liberated and set free, you've got to get over some heart issues sometimes. And so he said, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. There are people whose beliefs that govern what they think, say, and do, they've set up some beliefs to protect themselves that later become walls and barriers that confine them. That's not the purpose that God has for you. It's not what God wants you to enjoy. And so he goes on. He says, an opening of prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, some people might think, well, you know, that's God being, he's going to get them. I don't think that that's, first of all, that's not the heart of God. God's not looking to get people. I think what it is, is it's really saying God's going to have the last laugh. 
There are people who are brokenhearted, who are bound, and who are captive, who, who need to be liberated, and God's going to have the last laugh because life, the devil, the enemy, uh, circumstances have all tried to bind people, but God, because of the gospel and because of what Jesus did, has a way of bringing liberty in life, and God will have the last laugh. God will have the last word. He said he wants to comfort all who mourn. We see the word mourn here about three times in a row, to comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion, that's a type of the church. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. At the end of the day, God wants to use us, our lives, to bring glory to him. And notice again what he said, that he wants to give you, you and me. He wants to give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy that would replace mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. God wants to give you those things. And here's the thing, life breaks people. There have been events that have happened in people's lives that it looks like your life is toast. It is burned up and there's nothing left. It looks like all that you have are ashes. But God says, I can do something about that. I can turn those ashes into something beautiful. And you that mourn, I can give you an, an, the oil of joy, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring change to your life, to change the course and direction. And people will look at you and say, man, they were like accidents waiting for a place to happen, but I'm going to do something with them. And from those ashes, I'm going to create something beautiful. And I'm going to create something joyful. I'm going to create something that brings light and life to people around them so that ultimately I will get the glory. They'll look at that person and say, there's no way in the world they could have ever survived that except God doing it. And it all happens because of a heart. Now, when we talk about the heart and being brokenhearted or brokenness of heart, I, I need you to understand something, and I've wrestled with this for a couple of weeks, and this week something just kind of broke loose for me in, in thinking about it because when I say brokenhearted, we sometimes have a tendency to think, you know, well, I had this really bad breakup, break and because of this bad breakup, my heart's just broken. Or we use the phrase, just, my heart just breaks for them. And what we're talking about is, is, is an emotion, and we use that word brokenhearted so much, and, and, and a bad breakup, divorce, a business dealing, uh, those are all things that, that can leave you brokenhearted. So brokenness, brokenhearted, we, we refer to it as an emotion or a feeling, and it is that, but it's more than that. Brokenness of heart is more than a feeling or an emotion. It is, it is a feeling or an emotion that is tied to a belief. Because I believe something, I'm feeling something. My emotions are being affected because of my heart and what I believe. My beliefs govern what I think, what I say, and what I do. And so I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that this particular subject in people that I've talked to is, is just huge in people's lives. How many of you have ever had somebody say to you, and I hope you've never done this, I probably have been guilty a time or two. But how many of you, maybe when you were growing up, you might have had a parent who said to you, shame on you. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> shame on you. And you usually came with a finger. And how many of you, you grow up, and man, your spouse can give you the look, and right away, shame on you. Shame is, is a very powerful thing. I, I call it three evil cousins. There's shame and there's guilt and there's condemnation. 
Shame, guilt, and condemnation. Condemnation is a, and all three of these work together a little bit differently, but they work together to drive a wedge between you and God. Condemnation drives you away from God. Guilt causes you to feel something, and, and shame is involved in it. The Webster's Dictionary defines shame like this. It says, shame is a painful feeling. Now understand again, your heart produces things. Your heart produces feelings. Your heart produces beliefs. Your heart produces unbelief. Your heart is producing stuff all the time. And like autopilot, uh, like an autopilot system or an application of program software, something running in the background, your life begins to shape that, what your heart is producing. And so shame is a powerful feeling. Shame is a painful feeling, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress that is caused by the consciousness of wrongdoing. Anybody ever done something wrong? All right. And so there's a natural emotion, if you will, that is a part of that. Hang on just one second. There we go. All right. Shame is a painful feeling. A, a, a feeling of humiliation or distress is caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It is a painful emotion that is caused by the consciousness of guilt or shortcomings or something to be regretted. Now, I would venture to guess that every single person over the age of eight <laughs> in this room right now has experienced the pain of regret, has experienced the, the guilt, has done something foolish... I know you're all first service people. You're more spiritual, but you probably still have done something foolish and stupid, something that you regret. And many times with that, that feeling of regret, your heart produces something called shame. But here's the thing. Why is that? Because shame, guilt, and condemnation is something that the devil will use to try to limit or drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. And I'd like to tell you something this morning. It might be hard to grasp at first, but let me just try to prove it to you from the word of God. Shame, guilt, and condemnation should have no part in the life of a believer. Shame, guilt, and condemnation are not something that God has designed you to operate with or to carry around with you. So, Pastor Brian, how can you see that? I'd like to go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, and I won't take time to read all of this, but in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, you know the story of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. He created all the stuff that was in the earth, and then he created Adam, and then from Adam he created Eve, and the two of them ruled in the garden. They, they walked in, the, in, 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 in fellowship. They fellowshiped with God. God came down. They lived in life. They lived in love. It was a wonderful thing, and they had great experiences, and all kinds of cool things were happening. We have no idea how long that was, but it was an awesome time. But notice what it says says in Genesis 2.25, this is after God created Adam and then Eve and then drew, or Adam and Eve, and it says, and they were both naked. Everybody say naked. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I, I say this often. We do a pre-marriage class, and, and you've probably heard me say this many times, but don't let that word naked throw you. It's, it's more than just a physical nakedness. When you are naked, and, and forgive me for being maybe a little graphic this morning, but when you're naked, there's nothing hidden. Everything is exposed, the good, the bad, the ugly. When you're, amen, when you're physically naked. Good, bad, ugly. Hide every mirror or, you know, if you want to whatever, then you like mirrors. I don't know. But anyway, regardless, being naked, everything's exposed. 
And so Adam and Eve lived in a state of exposure, if you will, before God. Everything was out in the open. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing covered. And that's how they existed. They lived in the presence of God. They, they dwelt in the love of God. God had created them for visitation. God came and visited them and hung out with them. There's nothing hidden, nothing shameful, nothing. And then sin entered into their experience. The, the enemy came, the serpent came and tempted, and they, they, they sinned. They took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment they did that, something changed. We call it, we, we understand now that sin entered, separation entered their experience. But notice the result in Genesis chapter 3, 7. It says this, then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is after sin. The eyes of both of them opened, and what happened when their eyes were opened? They knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. And when they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. For the very first time, Adam and Eve experienced something and did something that they'd never done before. God came and said, hey, I want to hang out with you guys, and they hid themselves. And why did they hide themselves from God? Because they were naked. And they knew that they were naked. Now, nothing had changed technically. They, they were naked before, and they were naked after. But there was something in them that said, I need to hide from God. I need to not let God know where I am. And it became the classic case of hide and seek. God said, Adam, where are you? He knew all along where he was, but he needed Adam to understand some things. And so when that happened, basically what they did is they took their eyes off of God. They took their eyes off of this wonderful garden that God had made. They took their eyes off of everything. God said, it is good. I created the earth. It is good. I created the trees. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is. Everything was good. And suddenly they took their eyes off of all of the goodness of God. And what did they see? They saw themselves. And when they saw themselves, they wanted to cover themselves. They wanted to cover themselves because they experienced a powerful emotion. They knew they had done something wrong, and this powerful emotion of shame caused them to want to cover up something. They said, I need to do something about my condition, and so they covered themselves. And, 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 and I don't know if it's different translations, but, but our, our general understanding is that they covered their loins. I say, why were the loins the shameful place to cover? What was it that caused the, the loins to be covered up rather than something else? Why would, they, why would they do that? Well, when you think about it, the loins, the loins are the place where intimacy is experienced and where life is created. It's in the loins. Loins is where intimacy is, is experienced and life is created. And I believe that's part of the reason that the enemy wants to use shame and guilt and condemnation to attack us in this place of intimacy. Because your heart, the borders and boundaries, your heart is where life and intimacy is produced. Your heart on the inside of you is where life and where intimacy is produced. And when we experience shame or guilt or condemnation, there's the feeling that there's something I have to do. I have to cover up. I have to make sure. There are billion-dollar industries right now to help people, <laughs> to help people get over something. They look at themselves and say, I don't like this. I need to change this. 
It used to be I have too much junk in the trunk, and so I need some kind of surgery. Now you don't have enough junk in the trunk. You need more junk in the truck and trunk, and so you need to have surgery. Thank you. I like my trunk just where it is. Not adding nothing, not taking anything away. Notice chairs get smaller in my lifetime, but other than that, I'm okay. <laughs> if you can't say amen, say oh me. <laughs> Shame caused the, the spotlight of what God had done. Adam and Eve, their spotlight, man, God, you were good, and you've done so many good things. It caused that spotlight to be turned on themselves. And the moment they saw themselves, they saw lack. They saw inability. They saw sin. They saw what was wrong. And the moment that they saw what was wrong, they wanted to cover themselves up. And we do the same thing. Instead of looking at the goodness and the love and the grace of God, we look at ourselves and because we don't like what we see, we're, and I'm not talking about naturally here, I'm talking about spiritually. Some of you have been raised in a religious tradition that says if you say enough Hail Marys or twist enough beads, then you're going to be okay. Others of us have been raised, if I just confess, if I just pray, if I just do this, then maybe... Others, well, if I fast and if I pray, if I memorize so many scriptures, those become the things that we're trying to cover our shame with. And we have a weed whacker mentality when it comes to Christianity. I want to deal with the weeds and I'm going to whack at those weeds and those sins and those things that are pesky. But we need to get to the root and the root is right here. The root is a broken heart. The root is a heart that is not functioning the way that God originally created it to function. So what do we do? How do we deal with that? <laughs> Shame and guilt and condemnation. I want to read this, just some thoughts, because I don't want to miss anything, because when we're aware of shame or guilt... And we begin to respond to it. Our tendency is to cover it up. And so shame is a feeling about something that you've done, where you've messed up. It is a feeling of regret. I have heard people say things like this. I'm so ashamed. I don't want anyone to know about my problem. Others have said things like, you know, I, I don't want them. I'm so ashamed because of the abuse that I went through. I don't want anybody to know about it. I don't want anybody to know, to know that I failed in business. I don't want... <laughs> shame tries to dry, drag you back. Shame tries to drag you back to the past. It tries to get your eyes on you, and it tries to get your eyes on you in a way that makes you feel inferior, that makes you say that, that there's something wrong with you that you need to fix. You need to fix this. You need to take care of it. You need to do something. But grace says you're powerless to do anything. The more you try to do something, the less you will ever have God's grace in your life. And it's a hard, hard principle. It's a hard thing to understand. And so shame tries to drag you back into the realm of what you've done wrong. And the problem if you, the problem with that, if, if you choose to live there, is it negates everything that Jesus did for you. The underlying tone of shame is unforgiveness. The truth is that we have the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on Calvary's cross to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself so that we who live here on planet Earth do not have to suffer its effects anymore. His, his righteousness that he has given to us, the Bible says that we should walk in and dwell in and experience the fruit of righteousness rather than the fruit of sin or the fruit of unrighteousness. And so shame really is anywhere where you've not experienced the grace and the forgiveness of God. And, and, and really it's more like this. 
It's this feeling that I can't let go of this because I still need to do something. There is a debt that I have not yet paid off. And if I flog myself just a little bit more, if I beat myself up just a little bit more, if I, if I feel just a little bit more bad about this, then maybe I can have God's forgiveness. No, all of that is wrong. So here's God's reality for you. Boy, this speaks right to this right here, the border of our life. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3 from two different texts. King James, New King James says it like this. 1 John 3, 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart condemns, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Now, now, now hear this. If your heart, and again, I'm not trying to minimize wrong action or sin. All of us have sinned, amen? But how do we deal with it? What do we do about it? See, the moment you, you've done something and you're suffering the pain of regret or that shame, your sh that shame is beginning to do something. Your heart, the control center, starts to condemn. How do I deal with that? What do I do about it? Listen to this from the message. And I don't use the message version a lot, but I, I really liked this. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way that we'll know we're living truly and living in God's reality. God has a reality for you. I said, God has a reality for you. God has something for you more than what you're probably experiencing right now. God has something for you. And I know that for some of you, this is going to challenge, <laughs> this is going to challenge some of the past. He goes on and he says, it's also the way living in God's love. God loves you. Everybody say, God loves me. You know, I just because partly because just a study and prayer and ready for this message. And when we sang, good, good father. And I just heard the song a lot. But man, it just spoke to me how good our God is and how much he loves us. Such a good father. And we've been painted a picture of a mean, angry God. God's not that way. Amen. He's a good father, and he loves you. And we need, to, we need to embrace that, and I think that many people are brokenhearted right here because they don't know how much God loves them. And I tell you what, if you don't know how much God loves you, it's tough for everything else because you're still trying to earn. You're still trying to measure up. You're still trying to be good enough. So he goes on, and he says, it's also the way, living in God's love, to shut down debilitating self-criticism Criticism, even when there's something to it. Living in God's love is the way that you can shut down debilitating criticism, self-criticism, even when there's something to it. It goes on. For God is greater, God is greater than our worried hearts, and he knows more about us than we do ourselves. When I read that, I laughed out loud because I have like five, what I call five great revelations, and one of them is God is smarter than I am, and he knows me better than myself. I've, 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 I've said that so many times. God's smarter than I am, and he knows me better than I know me. And the reason I say that is because I can look into the word of God, and I have to say, all right, God, 
I know that you say that this is who I am. I know that you say this is, th- this is what you're saying about me right now. But, Lord, I don't feel like that. I don't act like that. I don't live like that. I, I don't experience that at all. But, God, you're smarter than I am. And, God, you know me better than I know myself. And when I read this in the Bible, I thought, there it is right there. There it is right there. And so he says, God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. Verse 21. And friends, once that's taken care of, once we live in his love and dethrone that critic that is there on the throne of our life, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we are bold and free before God. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. I've done something wrong. I feel terrible about it. And my response many times, people say, well, I can't go back to church now. What are we doing? We're trying, to hide, we're trying to hide and we're trying to cover up. Because your heart is condemning you. Your heart is alerting you that you've done something wrong and you need to deal with it. But the way that we deal with it is not giving in to the critic that is on the throne of our heart. If I, I want to encourage you, just, just for a second, close your eyes this morning. Just close your eyes for a moment and see yourself seated. And as you're envisioning the heart, the seat of your life, the boundaries of your life, imagine a throne that's there, and on that throne is the voice of the critic. The voice of the critic that's telling you you're not good enough, that's telling you you need to do more, that's telling you, that's reminding you of your past, that's reminding you of what you've done wrong, that's reminding you of everything, and telling you how ashamed that you should be, and how that God is so disappointed in you, that God is so displeased with you. And as you're observing that, I want you to muster up the courage, because every single one has a critic, every one of us has a critic on the throne of our life. There is some way that we are trying to measure up, trying to earn, trying to be good enough. And I want to encourage you to see yourself speak to the critic. Say, no, I'm not listening to that voice. I'm not going to listen to that voice any longer because my Father loves me. And my Father, (sighs) my Father's made a way of escape. My Father has made a way of escape through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ spread his arms wide and shed his precious blood for me so that I could be forgiven. And I now stand righteous. I stand clean. I stand forgiven. And God, I give you your rightful throne in my life. And I will listen to your decree, not the decree of the critic. And Heavenly Father, you say, you say that I'm loved and you say that I'm worthy. And you say, Father... That your love for me is so wide and so deep. And so, Father, I receive that. I, I expose the shame. I expose the guilt. I expose the condemnation. I expose the wrongness of my heart and my life. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to release me. And, Father, I receive that grace and I receive that forgiveness so that I'm free this morning. And, Lord, I declare that freedom today. I declare that I'm free. And, Father, I remind that critic, I remind the enemy that Jesus' blood is enough. It is that blood and nothing more. That brings cleansing and joy and power into my life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now, all of you, just keep your heads bowed for just a moment. I am not talking to you about making Jesus the Lord of your life and being born again. That's a totally different thing. 
I'm talking to you about a, re- a living reality that mends the brokenness of our heart and that will change the boundaries and borders of our life so that when we go to God with our requests, oh, hallelujah, when we go to him with our requests, there's no guilt and there's no condemnation. There's no fear. There's no worry. There's the love of the Father and the the smile of the Father that says, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. Hallelujah. With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed this morning, if you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, and you would like to today, it's very simple. It's very simple. God did all the heavy lifting when when he sent Jesus to die on Calvary's cross. He did the hard part when he raised him from the dead. (laughs) And he simply asked us to receive. And so if you're here today and you've never made Jesus your Lord, your Savior, and you would like to today, I would love to join you in a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than to pray with me. So if you're here today, would you lift your hand and say, Pastor, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, anyone at all. Do not be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else this morning? Praise God. Would you all pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you today for your grace and your great love for me. I see today that I need a Savior. Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And I believe that you rose again, that you're alive and seated at God's right hand. I've also learned today that I believe with my heart. And so, Lord, I believe in my heart that Jesus is alive. I confess today Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you that you've forgiven me and that you've given me a new future. In Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for these that have prayed this prayer. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have begun a work in them. Not a completed work, but you've taken the first step. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that their destiny, that their eternal destiny is changed. That they've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's Son. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.